This is episode 138 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Cell-Based Therapies in Late-Stage Clinical Trial. Hey everyone, I'm Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. But before we get to that, want to stay even more up to date with the latest Stem Cell Podcast news? Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at at Stem Cell Podcasts and be the first to know about upcoming guests. Moving on to today's show, we have Dr. Robert Willie Mays from Athersis Incorporated on the podcast to talk about the company's clinical trials using multipotent adult progenitor cells as a therapy for CNS diseases. We've also got a roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming up. But first, applications are still open for the next Stem Cell Podcast co-host, If you're a researcher who loves talking stem cells and conversing with some of the brightest minds in the field, then this could be the side gig of your dreams. Find out more and apply at www.stemcellpodcast.com slash co-host. Talk to your scientific heroes, people. They're there waiting for you. You could grill them. Ask them those questions that, you know, maybe they'd prefer not to answer. On to the roundup today. We got some good stories for you guys. We're starting at the heart of the matter. Cardiac, my favorite, one of my favorites. You know, heart disease remains the single most common cause of death and disability in the world. And it's only projected to increase as the population ages and eats more French fries. So we need to watch out. And you know, bottom line, cardiac muscle cell death, that's bottom line component of the acute injury, the ischemic injury, you know, lack of oxygen, the accompanying cell death, and also the chronic heart failure. It's all cell death, cardiac muscle cell death specifically. And to date, while we have, you know, the kind of mechanical approach to the stents, we can reduce the circulating cholesterol and all that good stuff as a preventative measure or as an acute measure to restore patency and blood flow, we don't really have any pharmacological or biologic means of enhancing cardiomyocyte survival or preventing, you know, death. So we don't have the clinical countermeasures to to target the intrinsic cell death pathways that fire up when you get this ischemic shock, all right? Now... What are the intracellular mediators of this? Mitogen-activated protein kinase, kinase, kinase. All those kinase, for all those kinases, they call it MAP4K4. A lot of kinase activity in this one. And uh, this is a mediator in, in, of the cell death in, in failing human hearts and in all the rodent models of, of heart attack. It MAP kinase quattro goes to work. Um, and so this study, which came out of Michael Schneider's group at the Imperial College of London, what they're doing is they, they took induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes, so human cells biopsy made into IPS and then to cardiomyocytes, and they did all this MAP4K4 gene silencing to show that the oxidative stress-induced death needs this MAP4K4. The kinase bugging out. You need that kinase activity uh, to get the whole oxidative stress-induced death. 
right? And then they use this um, small molecule inhibitor, DMX5804, and that rescues cell survival, as well as mitochondrial function and calcium cycling in these IPS-derived cardiomyocytes, right? And then when you take it up the ladder, the same thing, DMX5804 reduces ischemia reperfusion injury in mice by more than 50%, knocks it in half. I'll take half a heart, you know, in the acute phase. Preservation of 50% function, that's the move. Sign me up, Schneider. So that's, that's we're starting at the heart. And then, you know, peripheral, the, the heart of the matter, in addition to being the anatomical heart story that we just talked about, there's the heart of the matter here, which is, Regenerative approaches using iPS cells, cell-based therapy generally. We talked about this last week, and here we have a little follow-up. It's like an arms race, I guess, with the, um, the immunogenicity of iPS cells. We talked about this. There's a story in Nature Biotech. talked about it in the last episode. Um, and that's, we talked about this, which is the, one of the major concerns you've got to work out for before you're using any kind of embryonic stem cell, pluripotent stem cell, iPS cell, is the HLA mismatch, okay, the immunogenicity. You put this stuff in a people, if it's not autologous, even if it is autologous, there's some evidence to show that even autologous cells can elicit immune reaction, but specifically, you know, I said last episode, the language used to describe this, talking about how iPS approaches are being abandoned because off-the-shell off approach is just much more practical. Um, but let's talk about that practicality, all right? If you were, you know, one consideration, you just isolate a lot of IPS stocks from HLA homozygous donors, okay? And that could cover all the HLA haplotypes and get a bank, right? Um, but, like, it's not trivial to recruit the HLA homozygous donors to serve an entire population. It's not at all trivial, in fact, it's been estimated you would need 150,000 donors to be screened in order to establish 140 HLA A, B, and DR homozygous IPS lines. That could serve then 90% of the Japanese population. All right? So to consider serving, you know, a multi ethnic society, you know, the composition of the rest of the world outside of Japan. It's going to be a lot more. So it's just not practical. We talked about last week how they made these kind of ghost IPS cells to make them sneak around for 50 days plus. Here it's a similar approach used by Shin Kaneko and Akitsu Hota. They're both from Sira, not surprising, Kyoto. Ground zero of IPS cell research. Yamanaka came up, did his damage there. Um, I mean, they established the institute. I mean, to build on the Yamanaka thing, to be more precise. But, uh, you know, now they're trying to figure out a way to, to apply this, get into clinic. And what uh, Kaneko and Hata did here is they generated, they, first they generated these HLA pseudo-homozygous iPS cells with allele-specific editing of uh, heterozygous iPS cells. So they took iPS cells and they targeted, they were heterozygous, they targeted to make them homozygous for specific HLA types. Next... They um, made these HLAC retained, okay, iPS cells. If you blow out all the HLA, HLA A through Z, whatever, 
then the cells will be attacked by natural killer cells. So they made these HLA-C routine where they took out the HLA-A and B alleles so that the, the NK response would be suppressed, but they'd also maintain antigen presentation so that these cells could like have a much more reduced immunogenicity, but also have some surveillance so that they don't turn into cancers or stimulate this kind of basic response if you have no HLA, right? Bottom line, these HLA-C retained iPS cells, they can evade the T cell and NK cell in vitro, in vivo response, and you know, hang around and, and graft and do all their business. And the, the, what this translates to is the estimate is that you could make 12 of these lines, 12 of these HLA-C retained iPS cell lines, combined with the HLA class um, homozygosity uh, that they've induced, you could get a cell, cell lines with 12 of them that are immunologically compatible with more than 90% of the whole world population. All right, so you do a little hack there, and you get around all this recruiting and vetting of 150,000 people just to serve 90% of the Japanese, come on. We got to upgrade, do a little manipulation there and make some, some sneaky IPS cells, a bank that can match pretty much the whole population. Boom. They're moving towards, IP. it may not be what they envisioned over there in Japan, but IPS cells are they're, they're moving them slowly into the clinic. Well, maybe not so slowly. All right. Moving on to whatever's clever's. This is my nickname for the man. Every time he does something, it's clever. Whatever. Hans Clever's. He's out of the Hubrecht Institute in the Netherlands. And this is another, I think, really sneaky hack. You know, he's famous for his endoderm-derived tissues and organoids. Recent years, he's been doing a lot of organoid stuff. And organoids, you know. You can make them from ESLs, IPS cells, um, but you can also make them from adult stem cells, all right? So let's talk about the, the cost-benefit there. For, for tissues that are only made once, like the one-off, and don't really repair at all afterwards, like the brain, for example, it's really the only way you can go about it to make an organized tissue rudiment in vitro from progenitor cells. It's really you got to do this kind of developmental model using pluripotent cells. And other, you know, that was kind of where the, it was pioneered. Uh, organoids from P pluripotent cells was kind of pioneered in the brain space. Um, but since then, we've talked about it here, there have been pluripotent stem cell-derived mini-kidney organoids more recently that contain all the cells in the kidney pretty much. And they make these strikingly complete and functional mini kidneys, but it's tough. The idea of making these PS, you know, pluripotent stem cell derived organoids personalized, like IPS cell for modeling disease or for looking at you know, diagnostic measures in specific patients, it's time consuming. Why? Because you got to take the biopsy, go back to pluripotent cell, and then differentiate it you know, down the line. So... That protracted time frame, it's problematic, especially with the idea of like personalized cancer drug screening. Um, so it'd be highly preferable if you could just directly, you know, bang out some kind of adult cell and get them on an individual patient base to form organoids. That would be preferable, to say the least. So Mr. Clever's and his peoples over there 
in the Netherlands, they uh, figured it out. They got these conditions for making long-term growth of primary kidney tubular epithelial organoids that they call tubuloids um, that can be established from human or mouse kidney tissue, primary tissue. They can expand for over six months, 20 passages while staying karyotypically normal. And I think, I mean, this is why it's a big story and I'm sure it hit the news because you can uh, establish these cultures from human urine. All right, so putting all the scatological humor aside, which I'm sure there's a lot of rich comics being made by postdocs everywhere, but um, this, you know, urine has historically been a great diagnostic resource. You know, urine has a lot of stuff in it that's representative of what's going on in your body, not least of which are cells who knew you can get these uh, cells from human urine that form tubuloids representing proximal as well as distal nephron segments. Okay, and what they've done, this is particularly clever, is they've applied the tubuloids to model infectious disease. So doing BK virus infection. Uh, so they show they're good for that. Also malignant and hereditary, sorry, kidney diseases. Um, so they got tubuloids from Wil Wilms tumors. So that's like you can get a good diagnostic correlate of the tumor from the urine, potentially, or primary tissue. And um, they were able to get the tubuloids from urine of a subject with cystic fibrosis. And um, that allowed an ex vivo assessment of the treatment efficacy of the the treatment that they were going to use for this patient, they could measure the response in the kidney tubuloids, you know, which would provide a really useful surrogate for how the patient would react. So this is big time. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a thing that, it's low-hanging fruit diagnostically. We can get these cells pretty readily, and I think they're going to set up this new era of diagnostics using patient-specific material. Um, and really push that forward in in the kidney space. So, very very clever. He's done it again. All right, and on, another story that um, just as smart. This one's in Nature Medicine out of Barbara Trutlane and Sylvia Capello's group at the Max Planck Institute. You got to be smart to work at the Max Planck because Planck was smart. He doesn't take no scrubs up in his joint. You know what I'm saying? So. This is evidence of that brilliance here. Um, just background. What we're talking about is another IPS kind of organoid story here. Uh, so modeling. Um, but it's about uh, this specific uh, disease. All right. So first, there's the mammalian... Uh, cortical development, all right? It's like an ordered, orchestrated process. You can imagine, as complicated as the brain is, you need to have precise like creation of the cells, and then the cells need to like migrate and become spatially distributed and then mature, and that's how you form this multi-layered, complex structure that is the brain. The anatomy of the brain is where all that higher-order function is, right? So if you mess with that, order of things, you get disease. And in, in the case that we're looking at here, we're talking about something called 
periventricular heterotopia. Okay, this is one of the most common forms of this disease of like dis disrupted uh, uh, formation of the cortex. Um, and it's characterized by heterotopic, so kind of in the wrong place, neurons that are lining the sites of production. So you get misplaced neurons. Uh, in the patients with this pH, uh, they typically present with intellectual disability and as well as epilepsy, which is often associated with it. So what, what they did here is they found that they could get cerebral organoids um, from patients uh, with pH and that they would reproduce the cortical heterotopia. Okay, and, and they then mechanistically looked at what, what the, the genes that were involved in this, the mutation of these two protocadherins that are involved uh, in the disease. They caused changes in the morphology of neuroprogenitor cells, and that results in defective migration. And importantly, using a single-cell sequencing approach, they show that it's a very, it's a discrete subpopulation of mutant neurons that have dysregulation of genes involved with axon guidance, neural migration, and patterning. And so the authors here, Dr. Trutlane and Capella, they attribute the defective neuroprogenitor cell morphology um, and altered navigation system to this, you know, to the altered uh, and, and defective uh, differentiation of these neuroprogenitor cells in this context downstream of these protocadherins. So it's a good example of using the IPS cell model to kind of recapitulate the, the disease that presents in the brain. It's tough to kind of figure in the brain because, you know, it's not accessible. But to then deconstruct that into a dish it's difficult because the structure and the anatomy of the brain is everything, right? So they're able to show if you make the organoids, you can recapitulate this poor migration. And that, of course, is fertile ground for trying to rescue. So I'm sure that's where they're going from there. And finally, we have another study that is in the brain, but this is brain cancer, cancer stem cells. Glio, ugh, glio, we hate glio, the most aggressive and prevalent primary malignancy in the central nervous system, um, it's a major killer. And, you know, the treatments that we use now dominate because it's the brain. It's not accessible. It's radiotherapy, chemotherapy. And that really targets the proliferative tumor cells. But there's a relatively quiescent cancer stem cell in tumors that can evade these conventional chemo or radiotherapeutic strategies. Um, and the reason why they did is because the cancer stem cells, these slow guys, they have metabolic characteristics that set them apart from the more proliferative active cells and as well as just general somatic cells. So while the proliferative tumor cells, they rely a lot on this kind of Warburg effect, the aerobic glycolysis, slow cycling tumor cells, they may prefer a more uh, like, tip, like mitochondrial respiration. Okay, so just like you know, normal-ish, not this hyperactive Warburg effect. And this involves oxidative phosphorylation, of course. So what they do, Louis Parada and his group over there at MSK right across the street from me, they 
figured on this thing called G-boxin. Okay, it's a compound that they isolated from this massive screen, a high-throughput chemical screen in GBM glial cells, um, to to see if they could selectively kill. Um, GBM, the glial cells, while sparing somatic cells. So a targeted approach so that they wouldn't blow up the, the normal brain tissue. And they found, they found this thing, the way it worked uh, in selectively targeting the glial cells is that they targeted the unique features of mitochondrial pH that's, that's only in the glioblastoma, as well as other cancer, cancer cells. Um, and that rapidly and irreversibly compromises the oxygen consumption in these glioblastoma cells. And then when they apply this a meta metabolically stable G-boxin analog uh, in vivo, they can inhibit the glioblastoma allografts and patient-derived xenografts in mice. So it, it seems like this is a really good early candidate for an approach for targeting glioblastoma that isn't uh, specifically targeting the classic, um, you know, pharmacological uh, targets here, which, you know, cell cycle, proliferate, you know, checkpoint inhibitors, etc., to target the drug that may have a more collateral damage. They're going after this G-boxin, which may be a highly targeted uh, compound that could move the needle on glio, which we, we desperately need to move the needle on this thing, so... Big deal out of MSK. They got into trouble with all the industry sponsorships over there, but still doing good work. Proud to be across the street. Proud to be near to them. You know, it's a good opportunity to talk about something I'm also proud of. My affiliation with stem cell technologies. Hmm? Hmm. If you guys want to activate, expand, and differentiate your cells with cytokines, chemokines, and growth factors from stem cell technologies, then, you know... You're looking in the right place. These reagents are validated to ensure reproducibility across a variety of applications for immunology and stem cell research. All right, so you want some good stuff? You want some good reagents that have been quality controlled, vetted, and shown to have the most potent biological activity? You need to explore more at www.stemcell.com slash cytokines. All right? I don't know where you're getting your cytokines now, but have a look at stem cell. At least you know they're selling something that they stand behind. It's going to have activity, people. Get after it. All right, guys. Today on the show for the interview, we have Robert Willie Mays. He's the co-founder and vice president of regenerative medicine and head of neuroscience programs at Athersis, Inc. He's also the adjunct professor at the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine he and his group are focused on Athersis's proprietary stem cell product called MultiStem and its applications in regenerative medicine and drug discovery with a specific focus on injuries and diseases that affect the central nervous system. Willie, thanks for being on the show with us today. Hi, Galen. Thanks very much for having me. It's a, it's a real honor. Yeah, well, the honor's ours. Why don't you start by uh, telling us a little bit about uh, what you're doing over there? Yeah, so here at Athersis, we have a number of different uh, platform technologies, but our most advanced technology is our multi-stem uh, adult stem cell product. 
Uh, we're in clinical development for this, using the cells to treat a number of different indications. We have a number of open INDs and clinical trials that we're currently running. And as the head of the neuroscience group, I'm overseeing the phase three trial using the cells to treat patients uh, who have suffered an acute ischemic stroke. Yeah, this is really exciting for us. I think, you know, we talked to a bunch of eggheads come out of the lab. They have, I mean, these are the most brilliant people in the world, arguably. Um, we're lucky to have them on. I would consider you among them as well. But you got this other angle here. You're much more invested in the more clinical end of this. And, and you and your group and Athersis amongst a, a few, I'd say relative few, um, groups of individuals that are kind of bringing the whole cell-based therapy from the bench to the bedside. So uh, it's a unique opportunity for us. So we're going to hit you with a bunch of questions that are really, I know, you, you know you've done a lot of the research to build this up, but I think our, our interest really is in this idea um, of, of cell-based products and how they're going to come into the medical forefront. And I think you can give us a unique angle on that. So we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. Just to start, what are these cells? Okay, we got these MAPSIs, multipotent adult progenitor cells. Tell us about them. Where do they come from? And how do you use them? Yes, great. Great question. So, um, MAPSIs uh, were originally characterized by Dr. Dr. Catherine Verfai at the University of Minnesota in 2001, and we acquired the the rights to these cells. So they're they're adult multipotent cells. So they can um, they're isolated from multiple different tissues. Um, we use cells that are isolated from bone marrow almost exclusively. Um, they have the ability to express proteins uh, indicative of all three developmental layers. Um, so they, they in vitro can be uh, moved around to be multiple different tissue types or begin to express proteins of multiple different tissue types. Um, they have some similarities to the classic adult mesenchymal stem cells or, or marrow-stromal cells that were originally identified by Arnie Kaplan up the road here at Case Western Reserve University, but they're very, very different in, in, uh, in a lot of ways. So we, uh, we've been developing these cells, uh, learning how to maintain their biological potency, um, figuring out what sort of uh, animal models of disease or injury, we could see the cells affecting positive benefit, um, and then uh, and then translating them um, with a lot of safety and efficacy data in animals uh, in coordination with the FDA for about ten years. We really started doing uh, translationally relevant experiment in animal models of stroke and hypoxic ischemic injury, uh, 2004, 2005, 2006. So it's been a while. We've been looking at these cells, trying to understand what they do and how they affect uh, benefit. Yeah. You know, I remember in, during my graduate school training the, these cells um, because it was a really big deal. I mean, this was the time before IPS. It was kind of the heady times of, of where we had uh, 
gotten human embryonic stem cells, but it was difficult and fraught with all the you know bioethical and 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 other considerations. So it was a huge deal. Everyone's talking about the MAPSEs. There's an adult cell that has similar potency. And I think, you know, the idea of a, the multispectral, this cell type that's going to make a toolkit for all your organs, we've kind of gone past that with the MAPSEs, or maybe it's been displaced a little bit by the IPS idea. But I think the great irony there is that these now are the cells that are going to, that are being put in people, as you said, getting now to phase three. Um, but the, the mechanism of action there, I don't think is what many would have envisioned initially thinking of a more like regenerative toolkit. Now it's kind of in their immune modulatory function is, is the way, I mean, you, you, you could tell with greater detail, how are these cells working to uh, affect a, a, a clinical benefit? Yeah, that again, uh, Great question. So we, um, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, we were thinking along the lines of what you described. You have a, a cell that can appear to become tissues of all the different germ layers. You're going to look in a CNS injury model. You're going to look for the cells if you place them uh, via an intrathecal or intraparenchymal route, you're going to assume um, that they're going to become neurons or um, we see benefit. We Early on, we saw benefit when we placed the cells directly into the brains of animals uh, following a stroke or hypoxic ischemic injury. Um, didn't understand exactly how the cells were working. We, we began to talk with uh, translational leaders in the stroke and hypoxic ischemic injury space. And uh, they made the point early on saying, you know, if, if these cells are working and they're becoming neurons or, or repairing damaged tissue, you put them into the brain, that's great. But no one that's had a stroke or had a severe injury is going to want to have a burr hole drilled in their head necessarily right after their injury. So maybe can we check to see if they work via um, an intravenous route? So we did dose ranging and we saw that the cell number that worked when we gave them directly into the brain did not work when we gave them IV. So we began going up and up and up, and we found a dose at which the cells seem to have the same sort of benefit um, via an intravenous route. And so we're like, great, okay, that's how many cells we need to put in so that they get past the body's clearance mechanisms, get out of the lung, um, get up to the brain, and then start to form new neurons. But as we continued to do more experiments and start to look at other injury models, including traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, um, we started to see that the cells weren't going and integrating into the, the central nervous system. They were actually homing to the spleen. And so that kind of was an eye-opener uh, for us. And so we began to piece together using bioinformatics and doing microarray experiments of different tissues, both the site of the injury and the spleen and the blood, what was going on in an animal after injury versus what was going on in an animal after injury when our cells were uh, administered. And that opened up the Pandora's box of uh, the 
uh, amazing involvement of the peripheral immune system. So our cells uh, really seem to to work when given in uh, an acute time frame after an, a severe injury in the central nervous system by basically calling time out on the hyperinflammatory response. Um, so you basically, um, I wouldn't say blocking, but you're mitigating the activity and the migration of a lot of the inflammatory cells that want to go in. And you know, our immune system has evolved to be an amazing system, but in the case of the central nervous system, sometimes too much is, is bad. So by by mitigating some of the migration and activity of the inflammatory cells, um, we're going to give and induce less secondary damage around the site of the initial injury in the central nervous system, while simultaneously we see our cells calling forward the reparative aspects of the immune system, things like T-regulatory cells, M2 macrophage um, proliferation. Um, so the reparative systems come up faster. So we're turning down the bad guys more quickly and turning up the good and reparative cells faster. Uh, that's the hypothesis we've been working off with how our cells are providing benefit. Right. And this hypothesis, while I guess it, it's not necessarily what you were expecting going in with the regenerative approach, I mean, you've, you've followed the results way down the rabbit hole um, to, to great effect. I mean, just to review, you, you said you're phase three, but I'm just going to briefly review the progress so far. Of course, you've done the phase one safety, but I think the efficacy trial in phase two was the most impressive because it was double blind, placebo controlled. You had uh, multiple endpoints, both like a 90 day follow up and also a year and different modes of administration and found, I think, very impressive results, particularly when uh, the cells were administered in the acute phase, so to speak, in like the first 36 hours. So, I mean, you've built, I think, a strong case for these cells, however they're working. I think you've zeroed in on the mechanism there and, and your answer right there, and there may be some other things um, left to be uh, defined. But w where do you go from here now with the phase three? What's the, the scope of the phase three trial? And then you know, how, how is that going to affect the, the, the landscape in terms of, of therapy for what kinds of patients, et cetera? Yeah, so, um, so the current phase three trial that is up and enrolling patients uh, is going to be a global trial. We've got U.S. sites uh, only up right now, but we're going to be moving into Western Europe and parts of Asia um, later this year. So the plan is to have 50 sites up globally. Uh, we, following our end of phase two discussion with the FDA, we applied for and received RMAT designation, which is a regenerative medicine advanced therapy designation from the FDA, as well as fast track and special protocol assessment. So they granted us, based on the results of our phase two study, all of these, uh, all of these uh, acknowledgments, and so basically, the FDA worked with us to make sure that our endpoints were um, ones that they agreed with, uh, that the data that we'd be capturing, both as the primary safety and efficacy endpoints and the secondaries, all would 
be statistically powered to help support our um, hypothesis um, and also be powered to demonstrate uh, superiority um, in the uh, in the outcomes of, of the stroke patients. So, you know, right now, our phase three trial is modeled almost identically to our phase two trial. So we have 300 total patients in the phase three trial. 150 will be randomized to get placebo. 150 will be randomized to receive a single administration of cells in the 18 to 36 hour time frame. The phase two study was originally 24 to 36 hours, and that was based off of our animal work. Um, we saw that we saw uh, increased benefit when the cells were given early. We still would see some benefit uh, at like two days, but one day or earlier was was better. So, um, in the in the last trial, due to some of the basic issues related to thawing the cells and processing the cells at our clinical sites, we were missing a lot of patients. Um, the, the cell therapy labs at some of the primary hospitals were only open Monday through Friday, nine to five. So if you're trying to treat somebody in a 24 to 36 hour time frame and somebody has a stroke after 5 p.m., hmm. for them to get the cells in the 24 hour time frame, they'd need to get them 24 hours later, which would be after the lab closed, or add 12 hours to that, five in the morning when the cell lab wasn't necessarily open yet. So we, we started having neurologists come back to us and say, please uh, give us an extra 12 hours to treat the patients. So we made a protocol amendment, and the patients that got cells in the after we extended the time out to 24 to 48 hours, that extra 12 hours, uh, we didn't uh, we didn't see the types of benefit in 36 mm. to 48 hour administration that we did in the 24 to 36. Mm. So we've we've changed the trial to make it 18 to 36, bring the time in even a little bit more, um, and. Otherwise, we're trying to keep almost all of the, the outcomes and the, the trial design uh, the same. So we can demonstrate definitively um, efficacy in the ischemic stroke patients with a single administration of cells. There are all kinds of other things we can imagine and in some cases have preliminary data on. You could imagine we're doing ischemic stroke, but a hemorrhagic stroke, we believe there's the same sorts of mechanisms uh, involving the peripheral immune system. We think that the cells would uh, work uh, in the hemorrhagic uh, stroke uh, patient population, and we've got some preliminary data that would support that. Um, spinal cord, traumatic brain injury, um, these are other um, immediate uh, neurologic injuries where the mechanism we believe is is highly similar and that the, the administration of the cells w could have a real benefit for, for patients. Um, and so, these, cells, these cells are off the shelf, right? It's a, a, a like a vetted cellular product that then goes allograft into multiple patients. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's it's like uh, you consider it like typo blood. Uh, these cells um, do not need to be tissue matched. Um, they can cells isolated from any individual can go into any other human without any sort of immunosuppression or tissue typing. Um, this has been known about uh, adult uh, cells 
uh, of the of this type and 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 similar cells like uh, uh, some mesenchymal stem cells you can you can really um, give them without tissue typing. Um, so uh, we think that's a real benefit, right? If somebody comes in and they've had an acute injury and you get them into the ER and you get them stabilized, we think uh, having a cell that's ready to just be thawed administered. Uh, could could be the easiest and best way to really provide benefit for these patients. Yeah, I think it's interesting because uh, uh, maybe a lot of people have considered adult uh, stem cells and the products derived therefrom as like a as a as a intermediate, as kind of like a, a, a stepping stone towards the you know idealized, optimized, multi or pluripotent cell product. But in many ways, I guess these adult stem cells have have uh, advantages and uh, are more practical. But do you, do you think that this is, well, I guess cell therapy generally is very difficult to bring to market. If, if this uh, therapy comes to market and it looks like it's going in that direction, is this kind of like the, would this be a therapy that you think would be established and could be uh, as, I guess, widespread and I guess solid as the traditional kind of bone marrow transplant for hematological malignancy, something that will be established and then for 50 years we'll be doing it? Or do you think that this is kind of an intermediary step towards, um, you know, we're moving forward and this isn't necessarily going to be the final form or the final product for these types of indications? So I think as as a standalone product that this could be a benchmark that lasts for a long time. But I can envision, um, so if you imagine that it's, it's not just, um, if, if the involvement of the peripheral immune system um, is overt and can be problematic in other severe injuries as well, you can start to envision where giving a dose of these cells early after any sort of severe trauma could be beneficial. Um, so we see that we see that they could be the benchmark in stroke or p potentially spinal cord injury, potentially traumatic brain injury, just in and of themselves. The mitigation of the peripheral immune response and the and the moderation of the inf the uh, inflammatory cascade can be beneficial to patients. But I envision, and I've been talking to my scientific group about this for a while, I think that maybe the use of our cells primarily early on following uh, a stroke or a, an acute neurologic injury is the first step, but that then could enable some of these other new and developing cell therapies to come in and, and actually work in a more beneficial way. So IPS cells that are driven to become, you know, uh, specific types of neurons or specific types of, of the brain. Um, once you eliminate the inflammation and, and moderate the glial scar and give maybe a second cell type a chance to come in and rebuild some tissue, that I can I could envision that being a second set of trials, um, provided everything works in the current phase three trial the way we expect it to. Um, I could I could envision that that kind of second tier of of um, you know regenerative medicine uh, a dual cell therapy um, actually uh, having some even more profound benefit. But that again I'm talking we're talking about another ten years from now to be able to do that sort of proof of 
concept. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, though, the idea there, it resonates, I'm sure, with a lot of the communities, the idea of mitigating the damage and then going for the repair. So, yeah, that, that multi-tiered approach. But in terms of, like, just because the mechanism still, I guess, it, it leaves a bit to be um, sorted, uh, like, it, could you... Is, I guess the cells are doing so many things, as you allude to, that there couldn't be a kind of uh, surrogate. Like we couldn't find the cytokines or whatever, something that is more amenable to uh, FDA approval, frankly, a, a, a biologic or something. It's more within the traditional pharma paradigm that you could apply as a surrogate for the cells or the cells are just, they're doing so many things that it's impossible to recapitulate their effect with something that is acellular. Yeah, I, I tend to believe that the cells are doing so many things and affecting so many um, pathways, pathophysiologic pathways at so many different branch points that it would be tough. I, I'm, I'm not saying it would be impossible, but it would, it would take a lot of supercomputing time to figure out the exact order hmm. and dose of when to push a bolus of, of cytokines because every every you can imagine if if it's um, the involvement of cytokines as well as maybe the potential for involvement of extracellular vesicles or exosomes they have off-target effects they work at other sites around the body as well they they inform other tissues simultaneously so if you push a bolus of let's say IL-6 um, it's going to do more than just what it what we think it could be doing in the spleen um, at other off-target sites. So how do you, how do you moderate that biology at the same time you're just pushing a singleton molecule? The cells work multiple different ways. It's not just one receptor, one um, ligand, and stimulating one pathway. They are doing multitudes of things. And they do multitudes of different things depending on where and when you place them. We know that from all of our preclinical animal studies. Mm. So um, it's just, it's a very complex biology. What we know is the drop. What we don't know is the ocean. But that's why we come into work every day. <laughs> I like the way you said that. The, 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 I mean, the other reason you come to work every day, the market is humongous. I looked at the website. We're talking about $20 billion, maybe. I mean, who knows? People throw out these numbers, but it's on that scale. I mean, the problem is big enough and uh, ubiquitous enough. And I guess the solution that you have there is real enough that um, it, get, it could get there. What, what, uh, what is, and I was surprised, actually, because I went to a... Uh, MSC conference, um, thinking, you know, with the prejudice that MSCs are, there's a bit of a shadow cast on them with these stem cell tourism and a lot of the, the real negative attention that's been brought to stem cells has been based around these, you know, pop-up clinics where they're doing autologous, you know, bone marrow shooting it in the eye of people. It's crazy. So, you know, I was prejudiced when I went in there. I saw that in, in, in reality, when you, you're not paying attention to all the news stories and looking at all the labs that are doing this, there's a lot of groups focused on mesenchymal stem cells, their immunomodulatory effect in a whole range of diseases, and a lot of them are in, in trials, uh, phase one, phase two, maybe phase three. So it's not that the market's crowded, but there's certainly other players. How does uh, how do you guys like distinguish yourself 
from the other group or, or how crowded is the field? I mean, first, and how do you guys distinguish yourself within the field? So there are definitely a lot of companies that are evaluating cells uh, derived from a number of different sources and kind of putting them under the umbrella of a mesenchymal-like cell. So you get, there are certain companies that are looking at adipose-derived cells. There are companies that are looking at uh, placental-derived cells, umbilical cord, umbilical cord blood-derived cells. So each of these cells um, have some similar pro, um, some some similar uh, characteristics that are immunomodulatory and potentially beneficial. The cells are, however, very different, and I I know some data that uh, uh, for, that has been generated by some collaborators. Um, that will be published, I believe, later this year. I think it's uh, been submitted. The paper's been submitted. So cells, uh, some cells derived from different tissues make different levels of some proteins that actually can be, uh, could be problematic in, in a patient population. Um, and um, I know some trials with mesenchymal-like cells have been shut down after only treating a couple of patients due to the potential for some of these complications. We, we know our cells don't make some of these proteins, and we know our cells are smaller than some traditional mesenchymal stem cells. Our cells have less uh, extracellular adhesion molecules. So they, for example, when given intravenously, um, almost all cells then, all, all cell therapies that are given intravenously almost always get to the lung and they reside in the lung for some period of time. Sometimes they get stuck there for long periods of time. In the case of our cells, they're smaller and less sticky, so they pass through and get to the other side of the pulmonary system. Um, and we believe that's one of the beneficial ways they're working um, vis-a-vis their interactions at the spleen. They don't get hung up in the lung. They don't get stuck. Therefore, they have a chance to go and actually do something important um, at the level of the spleen, where some of these other cell types may not ever make it out of the lung hmm. um, or be stuck in the lung for such a long period of time that they don't have a chance to work in the optimal therapeutic window. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you're working with a different product, I guess, and it seems like your product is much more rigorously defined uh, <laughs> just by virtue of the fact that you know something about your cells. I think a lot of these uh, cell products, I mean, I don't want to generalize, but I think, um, you know, a lot of them are, are, are named from where they come from, but not necessarily w w what they are uh, and, and whether or not they maintain that phenotype. Uh, in vitro after continued growth. Do you guys have a relatively uniform product when you, and passage early versus passage late? Are there limits on how, I don't want to get into trade secrets here, but like, is this uh, a, a cell, uh, unlimited um, self-renewing cellular product or you got to kind of refresh from the bone marrow uh, pretty regularly? 
Yes, uh, great question. Um, so we have multiple master cell banks. And so what, what is a master cell bank? Uh, we have gotten bone marrow from multiple healthy young donors. Uh, we've isolated the, um, the cells from the bone marrow from these donors. And then we begin to grow them uh, using our proprietary, uh, you know, MAPSI multi-stem uh, media and conditions. Um, we get to a point where we have grown up enough of the cells and we freeze those down and that is our quote unquote master cell bank. So you take one vial of that and then you expand that up to make uh, your clinical product and that gives you the opportunity to at the master cell bank level test the cells. So we do rigorous safety and efficacy testing of the cells at that that point. Uh, we also have potency assays. Um, this is an important part of cell therapy going forward. The FDA has um, really been on top of if you have a cell product, you need to have a potency assay that describes from, pay, uh, from donor to donor, from bank to bank, from lot to lot, that the cells, after you've taken them through the you know, the, the cell manufacturing campaign, that you still have the same inherent biology or potency in that final product that you had at other points along the manufacturing train. So we've been working and developing potency assays for our cells. Um, and we have the ability to test at each and every stage along the way to make sure that there hasn't been anything, any sort of drift, any sort of genetic abnormality or rearrangement or anything that's happened that makes the cells at the end of the process different than the cells at the beginning. Mm. Um, so we, we do, we are, we are mindful. They are not uh, infinitely self-renewing. Um, and there's been some good work done by uh, academic researchers to demonstrate that as you as you take cells like ours or other mesenchymal cell types out past 40 or 50 cell population doublings, you begin to have an unstable product. So with that paper in mind, we are very careful in our manufacturing trains to be sure we get nowhere close to even 40 cell population doublings when we have our clinical grade product. And you say unstable product in terms of like perhaps efficacy, but also the emerging idea of extended ex vivo cell growth or extended cell growth period uh, has the potential to introduce these, you know, oncogenic transformation. Is that I, I, maybe a benefit of your approach is that this, the engraftment of the cells is kind of immaterial. In fact, you, you maybe don't want the cells to graft given the potential for oncogenesis or, or is that you've got it thoroughly vetted that these cells cannot transform? Uh, so the FDA loves the fact that our cells don't stay around very long. We can exert the biologic benefit in our acute models with a single administration early, and then we know from multiple models that our cells are gone. Uh, they, they they seem to be cleared from from the body in you know 48 to 72 hour time frame. We've done a lot of safety testing, uh, following discussion with the FDA to demonstrate and, and look for the presence of our cells. Um, after administering them in rodent models of injury. So do human DNA-specific testing to look for the presence of the cells, and we just know that the cells are gone soon after we place them in. So their benefit is in 
early, gone quickly. This is a good combination in the eyes of the FDA. I mean, so they, they care about the oncogenic nature of putting the cells from another person, you know, into a, into a patient, an, an allogeneic source. Um, and so they're mindful of that. Um, we continue to do our potency testing and our safety testing on all of the lots of cells that we make to ensure that we're not seeing any sort of change or drift from one donor to another donor, one lot to another lot. Uh, this is an important part of the, the manufacturing uh, that we, uh, the standards that we maintain here at the company. Yeah, I mean, for all the things we talk about, I'm sure there's a hundred of, of things that we're not going to discuss and the little details with how the F FDA crucifies you there in the process. So you guys have had a lot of time to think about this and envision how the, the product is going to play out. How do you envision, let's say, I mean, let's go far in the future, forget the numbers, 50 years, let's say. It's, it's going to be a different landscape uh, clinically. How do you envision that this product being administered, how is the, the clinical landscape going to be totally different? You know, like if you could give a, someone has a stroke, what's their course? How are they going to go about their treatment um, in this, you know, amazing utopian future we imagine? Well, that is a great question. So, um, so one of the things that one of the paradigms I think that our cells may have changed in the world of stroke injury and recovery is the idea of what you are at 90 days following a stroke is what you're going to be for the rest of your life. And what I mean by that is that there have been lots of studies. There's lots of really hardworking researchers that are trying to figure out what's the best course of rehabilitation and how much rehabilitation do you do and what kind of rehabilitation, rehabilitation do you do in stroke patients to, to get the brain rewiring itself so that you can overcome the deficits that are, that are left following the stroke injury itself. And when we were developing the protocol for the, the first master study, um, the phase two stroke study, all of the, the great stroke neurologists and our key opinion leaders that we brought to the table said, well, our endpoint needs to be at 90 days because what you are at 90 days is what you're going to be. And so we, that, that'll be the perfect snapshot to be able to see what effect the cells are having. We had seen in multiple animal models with our cells that the longer you kept the animals on study, in, in many cases, we kept animals on study much longer than 90 days, we continued to see a delta forming between the cell-treated and the placebo-treated animals. So it appeared to us that there was some longer-term benefit, either locomotor or neurologic rewiring, neural circuit rewiring, all of the above, in which the cell-treated animals were, were having a benefit not 
demonstrated in the, in the placebo-treated animals. So in the phase two study, we actually pre-specified a one-year endpoint. That's not great from the standpoint of sitting on your hands for an, an additional you know, 270 days to be able to unblind the data and know what's going on. So that was driving everybody a little crazy, I think. But I'm glad we did that because it was very clear. If you look at our clinical data, there was a statistical significance in the entire intent to treat population in recovery metrics in the cell-treated versus placebo-treated. So um, I envision, and so just one real quickly, we think that um, we know how long it takes if you cut the back of your hand for a scar to form and then fall off and you have a repaired uh, epithelium on the back of your hand. I don't know that in the history of, I'm not trying to sound too grandiose, but in the history of brain injury or central nervous system injury, we've ever had a chance to see how long it takes for the quote unquote scar to be overcome when we minimize the amount of glial scarring and we minimize the amount of overt secondary damage that's done by the peripheral immune system. So if our cells are working the way we think they're working and we're, we're mitigating um, glial scarring and loss of some neural pathways by administering our cells and we now give the brain a chance to heal itself, maybe it doesn't take three weeks like a scar coming off the back of your hand, maybe it takes six months, but it appears that the brain can heal itself. So I would envision in the future a chance where all of the people that have spent time asking how much rehabilitation can a patient handle, how much can we do, well, we start to to overlay that with the administration of our cells, and maybe now we have a new paradigm. Maybe rehabilitation of stroke patients can be even more uh, impactful um, in recovery metrics um, compared to just our cells or just uh, rehabilitation. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, not to sound too grandiose, but if you're going to be grandiose, so am I. The, I think the, the, it's beyond just stroke, too. I and mean, we've been talking in the last couple episodes about the, the immune, the, the pathological effects of myeloid cells in the heart and cardiovascular disease. So you can imagine, I mean, not specifically that MAPSEs would apply for that, but it seems like the, 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 the blood kind of, you know, turns on us and this immune response can be negative, especially in the context of injury. So any kind of traumatic experience you can imagine that dampening that early or mitigating at least that pathological immune response could do a lot. Uh, in terms of recovery, uh, especially, obviously, as you're alluding to, in the central nervous system. So pretty big, pretty big deal. Uh, Could I just chime in on one thing I found amazing and interesting, and this has led us to a a new clinical indication. Um, So I was asked to, to speak at a meeting two summers ago about the stroke results. It was right after we published the the phase two results. Um, It was at a meeting on critical care and trauma. And um, there was an interesting paper published about 10 years ago by a German group that basically documented if you were to survive a stroke or a traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injury, for the first 72 hours, you were more likely to die of a secondary uh, immune complex 
um, like like pneumonia or urinary tract infection or progression to ARDS, progression to uh, uh, brain swelling um, from the immune involvement than you were of the original stroke itself. So I go to this trauma conference and the first speaker of the day comes up and they're trying to find new ways to treat critically injured trauma patients. And amazingly, if you survive the first 48 hours after a hemorrhagic trauma and a bleed out and they can get your blood volume stabilized and repair all of your organs, you're more likely to die of a secondary immune-related complex like uh, urinary tract infection or acute kidney injury or ARDS um, than you are of the original insult. And I found that to be an amazing coincidence. And so um, we talked with the people um, in the armed forces and we, our collaborator, um, Chuck Cox, from down at the University of Texas Houston Health System, we wrote a grant in treatment of uh, chronically or excuse me traumatically injured trauma patients and uh, we got funding from the Department of Defense and so we're looking forward to starting a phase two trauma trial uh, later this year where we're looking at the use of our cells to mitigate the same sort of hyperinflammatory responses and I I, I don't think that the, there's a uh, it's a coincidence. Lately in the heart space, you've seen people starting to speak about the uh, cardiosplenic axis and the uh, the effects that a heart attack has on the spleen and other peripheral immune organs. I think it's all sort of the same um, same sort of phenomenology that the, our immune system responds and sometimes it res responds in too robust a way. Um, just the way it evolved to do, but maybe in some of the cases of these acute, severe injuries, um, a little less would be a little more. Yeah, between that and the whole CAR T therapy for cancer, I feel like the immune system has taken center stage uh, when it comes to disease and uh, treating disease. All right, well, that's a, a nice little nugget. It looks like the tentacles of the MAPSEs are extending into every field. To end our interview, you know, we're going to do a little bit of a personal touch here, Willie. Uh, hope yep. you don't mind. We got a couple questions uh, that are outside of, you know, strictly speaking, science. We got one which is, uh, <laughs> I guess it's not outside of science at all, is it? We got a question here which is two two pronged. The first is, what was your great aha moment in your career? One of them, and, and the other was the greatest uh, disappointment or, or surprise in science, an unexpected result. Uh, so. I spoke about this a little earlier in the discussion, so I'm sorry if I sound like I'm repeating myself, but um, the, uh, the fundamental change in the way we were thinking about what was going on, the entire, the entire field in, in the stroke, the use of cells uh, around 2005, lots of people were taking lots of cells isolated from lots of tissue sources, putting them into animal models of stroke, seeing benefit and then talking about how those cells were becoming neurons or re rewiring or reworking um, the brain after the stroke. So we just assumed that's the same way our cells were working when we saw they were having benefit. We made the completely um, short-sighted leap forward with the fact that giving a dose intrathecally or directly proximal to the site of the injury in the brain and then giving a dose that 
also showed benefit intravenously were cells that were just working through the same mechanism, and that was getting close to the brain. So the aha moment really for me and the team was how the heck are cells not going to the site of injury but causing uh, a, a robust um, locomotor and neurologic improvement. And when we started labeling the cells and finding out they were going into the spleen, that was uh, mm. that was a real kind of, um, that was a big moment for us. Yeah, I guess the other side of that is it must have been disappointing when you're looking at the in the brains of these animals, rodents, and not seeing cells. Exactly. <laughs> it was like, you know, uh, our CEO, Gil Van Bocklin, he was like, Go back in the lab and do it again. Something's yeah, not right. Exactly. They're there. Trust they're there. me. Until, until you find out they're not, and then you're like, oh, of course, they were never there. Um, all right. The second round, this is a series, uh, a little fill in the blanks here. So one is uh, the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is? Communication or lack thereof. We got lots of people in, lots of lay people in the world hearing about stem cell clinics and get your own cells and get a shot. You, you spoke about it a little bit earlier. We need to do a better job of telling people that there's lots of safe therapies being, um, you know, that are right on the horizon and you just have to understand um, the, the risks associated with these fly-by-night types of companies. I, I just really can't stress enough that, that we, we need to do more on our part about debunking or, or taking some of the weapons, uh, uh, the advertising weapons that these companies afford about come, we'll cure everything from male pattern balding to pick a more serious disease. It's just, <laughs> it's not, this is communication. We need to let them know that there are real cell therapies that are going to be in their hands soon. Uh, I can't imagine it must be tough for you guys every time one of these ridiculous stories comes out. It must be a bunch of more gray hairs over there. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's you know, it's guilt by association, right? If you use the word stem cell and some some fly by night organization is saying, come get a, uh, an autologous stem cell treatment, they just see they we get painted with the same brush. And right. it's ridiculous. Unfair. Uh, well, I mean, you guys are going to bring the mesenchymal-like stem cell field out of the trenches, so there'll be a, a happy ending, I'm sure. Next question, or next blank. I would never have gotten to this point in my career without... Mm, the support of my mother and father. Yeah. When you go to grad school in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1990s, um, you know, they always made me do my homework when I was in high school. I, you know, it's not like they had to make me. I found science interesting. But once you get into grad school and you're living in the Bay Area and you're pulling down a solid $12,000 a year as a grad student, <laughs> you, you need a little help to get through those lean years of uh, <laughs> of eating macaroni and cheese, you know, with with regularity so that my parents were uh, were great about making sure that I could uh, afford to put gas in my car to get back and forth from the lab and so there it that, is this is yeah. a good opportunity for me to say thank you mom you did a and pops too you did something but mom you're the greatest and and Mr. and Mrs. Mays good for you uh, next when it comes to blank I am pretty much useless 
home improvement projects. And my wife, who's a pediatrician, has come to understand that in our 13 years of marriage. I, I, I can read all the home repairs for dummies books you want. I, it appears I lack some basic inherent <laughs> common sense when it comes to helping her around the house. I certainly put in the effort, but I don't think uh, aesthetically I'm, I'm the best well, bro, you'll always have Ikea. I think that this is why <laughs> yeah, husbands exactly. exist, is just to put together Ikea furniture. Uh, last one. If the lab catches fire and I have a chance to grab one thing on the way out, it's... All of the pictures and notes that my daughters have written to me telling me to have a good day and uh, all of the notebooks and stuff like that, we've got those electronically stored, but it's the personal things that you, you got to have with you. Wow, that's real. There's some very heartwarming answers in your fill-in-the-blank session here, Dr. Mays. I'm very impressed, and uh, you're, you're winning over our audience with that. <laughs> Great answer. Well, well, thank you very much, Daly. <laughs> I try to be a centered person. <laughs> well, you can imagine. You talk to enough scientists, and you wonder if anybody has a heart. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. That's true. But uh, you, you are a warm-hearted individual and doing good. If not in the field of the heart, certainly in the field of cardiovascular disease and stroke, making a big difference, and I think pioneering a therapy that's going to be out there and in play before most others. So thanks for coming on the show and tell us about, telling us about it. Willie, we'll have you back again when you uh, have your next accolade. Thank you very much, Dale, and I had a great time. It's really an honor being on your show, and uh, I really appreciate the time. The honor is ours. Have a good one, man. All right, that brings us to the end of the show with Dr. Robert Willie Mays, home run hitter. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. We had a little bit of a clinical bent on this episode, and I think we all are smarter for it. Here's to the future, a utopian ideal of cell-based therapies, beginning with the MAPCs out of the Say Hey researcher, Dr. Robert Willie Mays. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next episode, ladies and gentlemen. Keep on sciencing. Mm -hmm.